This edition of Monocle on Saturday was first broadcast on the 23rd of October 2021 on Monocle 24. I'm Georgina Godwin, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. This is Monocle on Saturday. And coming up in the next half an hour, Charles Hecker joins me to chat through the day's front pages. Plus, we'll hear from our editor-in-chief, Andrew Tuck. As in so many jobs, what you need, as much as flair or talent, is to make a commitment to one path. And then, just let time do its business. And Andrew Muller tells us what we learned this week. We learned this week, and there's no guessing when knowledge will come in handy, what you need to catch zebras. It turns out, it's more zebras. That's all ahead on Monocle on Saturday, here on Monocle 24. The White House has reiterated that Joe Biden was not signalling a change in US policy towards Taiwan when he said the United States would come to the island's aid if it was attacked by China, and analysts dismissed the president's remarks as a gaffe. China urges the United States not to send the wrong signals to the forces of Taiwan independence to avoid seriously harming Sino-US ties and peace and stability in the Taiwan Strait. The group of seven wealthy nations agreed on principles to govern cross-border data use and digital trade in what was described as a breakthrough that could liberalise hundreds of billions of dollars of international commerce. The deal sets out a middle ground between highly regulated data protection regimes used in European countries and the more open approach of the United States. And China has passed an education law that seeks to cut the twin pressures of homework and off-site tutoring in core subjects, the official news agency said today. The new law makes local government responsible and asks parents to arrange their children's time to account for reasonable rest and exercise. In recent months, the education ministry has limited gaming hours for minors, allowing them to play online for only one hour on Friday, Saturday and Sunday only. And that's your Monocle 24 News. And now let's have a look through the newspapers. And I'm pleased to say that joining me this morning in the studio is Charles Hecker, Senior Partner at Control Risk. Good morning to you. Good morning, Georgina. I was very impressed that you got here on your bike. Yes, this is my new thing. Um, I bought a bike at the end of the summer and I don't go anywhere without it. Do you feel safe cycling in London? It's a tricky proposition. Um, By and large, I do feel safe. I think the most dangerous thing for cyclists in central London, frankly, are other cyclists. Um, I'm okay with the taxis. I'm okay with the buses. um, But uh, some of the other cyclists are out there really kind of bombarding the streets. That's extraordinary. Uh, Yeah. yeah. I mean, as a driver, I'm quite afraid of cyclists. Well, I think, you know, to be a successful cyclist in London, and I'm learning this really every day, but to be a successful cyclist in London, I think you need to be incredibly vigilant, and a little bit confident. Mm. And and there are moments when you just kind of have to push forward and not hesitate because that's usually what gets you in trouble. Yeah. So vigilance or lack of vigilance is something that uh, has influenced the big story on most of the world's front pages today. And that is the tragic shooting of a film director by the actor Alec Baldwin, who was given a gun that the obviously not so vigilant prop master told him was fine, was not going to fire live bullets. Uh, tell us more about what's now emerging uh, from this story. That's right. That's This is a, this has happened yesterday and unfortunately 
unfolded over the course of Friday, but continues to unfold and is in all of the papers today. And we're going to The Guardian with a headline that says, Alec Baldwin was given loaded weapon and told it was safe. Court records show. And so of all of the tragic and, and horrible thoughts and questions that arise as a result of a story like this, one of them is how on earth did bullets wind up inside a gun on a movie set where everything is fake, you know, fake teeth, fake hair, fake uh, blood, um, and all of a sudden real bullets. And what happened is that um, an assistant director on the set of this movie um, in New Mexico told Alec Baldwin that the gun wasn't loaded with live ammunition before he used it. And we're told that the gun was discharged during filming. Uh, and it was Alec Baldwin was given the all clear, uh, you know, so in, in all of the different tragedies that evolve out of this, including a promising young cinematographer who is no longer with us and everything that, that her loved ones are going through and a director who is was gravely injured. Um, you also have now a crew that will be examining its policies and its procedures and, and how a live weapon was handed from one person on set to another. Yeah. I mean, do we know for sure that it was live? Because there have been uh, circumstances in the past where uh, blanks have actually killed people. When they're fired at very close range, that can happen. That's right. So The Guardian tells us that in, in an environment of increasing gun safety on sets, because in 1993, there was an actor who was killed on set, Brandon Lee, um, and things have tightened since then. But you're right. Even blanks can fatally injure uh, actors on a set if they're fired at close range because there is still an, an enormous amount of force emitted from a gun when it goes off blanks or otherwise. Um, and that can, can have tragic results and has, in fact, The Guardian tells us in the past. There are other things that get stuck inside of, of weapons that are shot out uh, when they're fired, and those can also cause injury. I mean, I think that, you know, The Guardian says that there's this increased gun safety on set. I think it's going to have to go up another notch. Absolutely. Now, apparently there was already a, an uneasy feeling on set. There had been some walkouts by members of the crew earlier that week, uh, and it was, in fact, apparently not a, a very happy set at all. And the other thing uh, is that uh, the, the movie itself is about an accidental murder. I'm learning as we go here, Georgina. That's really interesting. And so, you know, well, um, you know, hor a horrible, ironic twist then to a story. And I think we were talking about this a little bit earlier this morning, that irony is having a very tough time in, in, in 2021. And you're absolutely right that that the woman, the cinematographer who, who was accidentally killed on set is part of a union. The union is set to vote soon on a new contract with producers. There have been threats um, for strikes, um, including on issues like long hours and on set safety. Um, so clearly this is a prominent issue. This is a tragic event. Um, but the main character, if you will, um, in the story, or at least one of the main characters was given the all clear. Yeah. And uh, I wonder what this means for Alec Baldwin. You do have to think. I mean, after our thoughts go to Helena Hutchins um, and to Joel Souza, uh, the woman who was killed and the man who was injured, um, you know, Alec Baldwin is a genuine celebrity uh, for all kinds of reasons, including the fact that he's an incredibly accomplished comic actor. And, and be possibly best known in that form of, with his ripoff of Trump. Yes, that's right. You know, those those skits on Saturday Night Live when he comes on and does a, a frighteningly convincing Donald Trump, um, something that has caught the attention of Mr. 
Mr. Trump himself, of course. Um, Alec Baldwin is an accomplished um, comic actor. Uh, and you have to wonder if for the rest of his life and the rest of his career, if there is a career after this, um, this is all he will ever be remembered for. Yeah, absolutely tragic on, on so many levels. Well, talking about careers, our editor-in-chief has a word or two to say about that. On magazines, on newspapers... There's often a fork in the road that appears for a young journalist. Take one direction and you continue as a writer. Take the other and you set a course for becoming an editor. There's also a well-used side gate here that gets you the hell out of this profession. Both routes can be fine ones. It's hard, for example, to think there's any difference in prestige among your peers between being a writer or an editor. When I approached this choice long ago, I went for the path that I hoped would one day lead to editing a magazine. It was the right one for me. For starters, I was surrounded by people who were far better writers. Just look at my days at The Independent on Sunday, where I worked alongside Maggie O'Farrell, author of current hit Hamnet, as well as Kate Summerscale and Jojo Moyes, both of whose books also always leap to the top of the bestseller lists. But from the beginning of my career, I also got drawn into watching editors put pages together. Dominic Wells at Time Out just had a way of envisaging a story that showed a mental dexterity that I wanted to emulate. And he and Deputy Editor Nigel Kendall also wrote genius headlines that made a story sing. And years later, I worked with Simon Callender at The Independent, an editor with crisp views on everything from politics to newspaper design, the perfect all-round editor. Over time, I slowly discovered that I was not bad at both finding the right writer for a commission and liaising with everyone needed to deliver something that read well and hopefully caught people's attention and then continued to keep them engaged. And many of the writers who I met all those decades ago are still with me. Andrew Muller and I have a long history of mad commissions. Michael Booth, our Copenhagen correspondent, has been a partner in words since my Time Out days. And I'm sure both would also like me to point out that they too are successful authors. Why am I giving you this meandering start to the story today? Well, a few things. If you heard last week's missive, what? Best things to do, you say? How impertinent. You will know that we are in recruitment mode and have been meeting lots of interesting journalists in recent weeks. It turns out that quite a few of them are standing at that fork in the road. They are applying for editor roles that could set them on a new direction in their careers. So you have to quiz them about why they want to do this and what they think this job will actually involve. Some have just never really thought about it that much and should probably stick with being writers. Thankfully, others are obviously keen to influence the look and feel of a report and have a passion for how magazines are made. Strangely, however, I've also found it annoyingly troublesome explaining to the truly uninitiated the intricacies of editing. As in so many careers, when you've learned how to do something across a long expanse of time, it becomes a reflex. Yes, there are plenty of things that don't work out, of course, but we'll ignore those ones now for the benefit of a better story. And explaining instinct is hard. It's easy to trot off a list of the day-to-day -day tasks required, but the passion part, the values you try to work by, the subtleties you try to add along the way, 
seem to wriggle away from you just as you try to speak them aloud. The fact is, as in so many jobs, what you need as much as flair or talent is to make a commitment to one path and then just let time do its business. Many thanks to our editor-in-chief, Andrew Tuck, there. Well, commitment is something that we are all hoping for at COP26. Commitment from all parties to accelerate action towards the goals of the Paris Agreement and the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. Uh, Charles Hecker from Controlris is still with me. Uh, Charles, as we ramp up towards COP26, which has been described variously as a, as a, as a world-shaking moment and as something that really isn't going to do very much at all... Um, <laughs> There's a shocking, uh, shocking evidence of uh, methane leaks, but not 25-minute walk from the venue. That's right. So Glasgow is coming in for an awful lot of stick in the run-up to COP26 starting next weekend. You know, firstly, we're told that the trains may go on strike. Secondly, we're told that the on-the-ground logistics are, are, are not working out very well. And, and, you know, Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin have announced that they're not coming. And, and this morning on the very front page, the FT tells us that methane which is one of the most toxic uh, greenhouse gases, is leaking from a gas pipeline just a moment's walk from Glasgow near the Ibrox Stadium. And it is the equivalent of 500 cows a year. And, you know, we measure these things in cows because we all get a little bit of a giggle from learning that one of the main sources of methane is cow flatulence. And so um, the world is coming together starting next weekend in Glasgow, um, as you pointed out, in something that's either supposed to be earth-shaking or, you know, a complete waste of time. Um, in, and in what is, by the way, kind of turning out to be sort of the new Davos um, gathering in Glasgow. And while they try to wrestle with climate change, um, somebody is going to have to run around and plug the leaks um, near the venue. Uh, but I suppose what we should really be talking about is whether anything is going to come out of COP26 and, and how we should be managing our expectations uh, for the success of that. And, and we do have the world coming together, and it is time um, not just to make climate commitments. That was done in Paris. That was done in Copenhagen, but really to describe climate action. And, of course, that's the hard part. No, absolutely. I mean, uh, here on, um, on um, I think CBC is talking about, uh, you know, the fact that it has been hailed as the last best chance to stop catastrophic climate change. But is there any sign that countries have set themselves and the planet up for success? And a lot of, a lot of debate around that. Uh, and, um, uh, you know... One part of this conference is, of course, the, the whole kind of circus. So you have all these celebrities flying in, you have entertainers, you have world leaders. The real work, of course, is behind the scenes. That's right. And and you're precisely right. I mean, to, to expect people to hammer out a global agreement over the course of a few days at a large city in Scotland is unreasonable. And, and all of the work is done in advance. And whether it pays off or not is what we're going to see in Glasgow. And, and, and frankly, there's a school of thought that says really, no matter what is agreed at Glasgow, it's already too late. Um, and that getting countries and companies and consumers to change their behaviors in such a fashion as to limit um, the rise in global temperatures to two degrees Celsius or even 1.5 degrees Celsius, which would be even better still, is now uh, an exercise in futility and that it's too late. And it's no longer about arresting climate change, but going forward, we're all going to have to adapt 
to climate change. Mm. Uh, now, Glasgow itself is is uh, suffering hugely. Uh, more than 30,000 delegates from 196 countries are arriving and there just simply isn't the accommodation. People are booking hotels 100 miles away. You're getting Airbnbs for £1,000 a night. It seems to be just, I mean, it's it's, it's really badly organised. Yeah, the, the, the host city always winds up getting trampled, both physically and in terms of its reputation uh, during events like this. We're trying to send a couple of colleagues. In fact, we are sending a couple of colleagues up to Scotland um, to witness what's happening in Glasgow. And let me tell you, logistically, they're having a really, really tough time of it. They're staying in Edinburgh. And that's why if the trains go on strike, things are going to get quite difficult um, quite quickly. And there is um, a chance that, frankly, a lot of the Scotland-bound trains from London won't leave the station um, at the moment of truth. And so... Yeah, it's hard. I mean, you know, Glasgow has had big meetings before. The UK has hosted major international summits all you like, um, you know, not to mention the Olympics. Um, but this is a tough meeting to pull off. And, you know, the, the eyes of the world will be focused on Glasgow and, and, and we'll see how it goes. Mm, absolutely. Just while we're still on, on, on climate change, uh, I just interviewed Richard Powers, who's written uh, the, the most beautiful book, uh, Bewilderment. You, you might remember him. He won the Pulitzer Prize for fiction for his uh, novel Overstory about trees. Uh, and Bewilderment is very much a kind of climate change novel. It's where climate change meets um, tech and science fiction. Um, but but what, one of the things I found really interesting is that the title comes... Uh, I mean, what he's doing uh, is kind of teasing out Plato, basically. Uh, and so, so the Plato quote from The Republic is, anyone who has common sense will remember that the bewilderments of the eyes are of two kinds and arise from two causes, either from coming out of the light or from going into the light. Uh, and, and then it carries on. And, and of course, that, that's what we're looking at here. If, you're, if, you're, if you've opened your eyes to what the problem is and you see this huge thing, when you go back in, to explain it, you're talking to the dark and it's really difficult. I, I think I'm becoming a bit of a climate pessimist and so I think I see a little bit more darkness than I see light. Um, I think what's going to happen is unless there is a successful outcome from COP26 in Glasgow, um, what we're going to learn is that governments are no longer going to be able to save us. They're no longer going to be able to help us. They're no longer going to be able to set the tones or the regulatory standards that can govern a substantial enough change in global warming. Mm. And, 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 and the, the hard part of all of this really is that we are constantly told the message that climate change is something that's generational and that we need to do something so that the next generation can live in a sort of peaceful and prosperous planet. And, and I don't think this is about the next generation at all anymore. This is about next year. It's no longer climate change. It's a climate crisis. It's a climate emergency. You know, the frequency and, and the severity of climate-driven weather events around the world now is unprecedented. And not only are we getting more of these climate events, but they're happening simultaneously in different parts of the world, placing enormous pressure on people, on societies, on communities. And, and this isn't just about the polar caps. It's not just about the weather. This is about water scarcity. This is about migration. This is about political stability. The, you know, this is probably one of, if not the driver of risk 
going forward, really, from Glasgow and beyond and, and, and well before it, frankly. Yeah. Uh, Charles, let's let's turn to something lighter, although it feels a, a little clumsy to, to do so when, when faced with this amount of, frankly, eco-trauma. I think a lot of people are being pretty traumatised by this. I mean, not just the people in the front line who are suffering, but, but people just thinking about it. So let's take our mind off it with Andrew Muller. I got stripes, stripes around my shoulders. I got chains, chains around my feet. I got stripes. We learned this week, and there's no guessing when knowledge will come in handy, what you need to catch zebras. It turns out it's more zebras. Is that really the noise zebras make? I'll be hornswoggled. An amount of backstory may be in order here. Listeners who maintain a news alert for runaway animal stories may recall that for the last couple of months, the American state of Maryland has been roamed by what we learned when we looked up the collective noun is a dazzle of zebras. And yes, we saw dazzle of zebras opening for Cocteau Twins at the town and country in like 1992 or something. Anyway, three zebras escaped from a farm or somewhere and have evaded capture ever since, aside from one which died after being caught in a snare trap. Well, someone's up a rug, and now two rogue zebras remain on the lamb. We learned that the new plan is to stake out two more zebras in a corral with a quantity of whatever the hell zebras eat in the hope of attracting the runaways with the promise of companionship and sustenance. Okay, it's just weird now. Make it stop. But... Sticking with the theme of capricious fauna in black and white stripes, we learned of potential offence caused by the guileless hospitality of some fans of Newcastle United Football Club. We learned last weekend, while watching Newcastle's widely enjoyed 3-2 loss to Tottenham Hotspur, that noticeable quantities of supporters had chosen to welcome Newcastle's new owners, the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, by pitching up clad in approximations of traditional Saudi garb of what we will choose to describe as varying authenticity. We learned that Newcastle's PR people, if not Newcastle's fans, are perhaps mindful of their new overlord's famous sensitivity to slights, which has in reasonably recent memory gone as far as murdering a journalist and chopping up his body on the premises of one of their diplomatic missions, and it might be a while before we as a profession stopped going on about that and had hastened to compose a statement of singular obsequiousness, as will now be read by Monocle 24's Cultural Appropriation Desk Chief, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Newcastle United is kindly asking supporters to refrain from wearing traditional Arabic clothing or Middle East-inspired head coverings at matches if they would not ordinarily wear such attire. We also learned that under the new regime, Newcastle United's manager, Steve Bruce, had got the axe, at which we learned that we are actually able to rise above some cues for cheap jokes. Also... We learned that nobody is making plans for Nigel's. 
We learned from the always diverting annual survey of children's names furnished by the UK's Office of National Statistics that Nigel, as a name, has fallen into disuse, if not disrepute. In the last year, no Nigels were christened, almost as if the name had become intractably associated in the popular imagination with some sort of shifty snake oil merchant who'd encouraged an entire nation to sell itself up the river. Nigel. Oh, I wonder where he's going. Mm. 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 How many are there anyway? Could that be there? We were as baffled as anyone, at least momentarily. For it was literally a moment later, we timed it, that we learned of the latest adventures in cameo of Nigel Farage. You know it isn't that cameo. Why would you do that? We refer, of course, to Cameo as in the deeply weird but strangely compelling platform via which you can pay people of exceedingly varying renown to say and do stuff. We have noted previously in this space that Farage is available for 73 quid a go, but we have learned, sadly, that certain puerile rapscallions are taking advantage. Let's have some muttered disapproval. <laughs> For we learned that juvenile miscreants are amusing themselves by gulling Farage into recording birthday wishes which also express apparent sympathy with the Irish Republican Army. But I hope you enjoy a few pints with the lads tonight. Up the ra. We learned that having swizzed Farage into uttering the common IRA cheer up the ra, someone had gotten more ambitious, soliciting many happy returns for a certain Gerard Adams, and you can see what they've done there, leader of a team which had operated in some capacity in Brighton at a venue whose name sounds remarkably similar to the Irish for Our Day Will Come. And they're looking forward to seeing you and some of the old team back at Chucky Arnor's in Brighton. I've had the full story. You were the team leader there for many years. Nevertheless, we, which is to say our lawyers, all right, Lionel, stop going on about it, wish to make it clear that Nigel Farage and the IRA are in no way alike, as one caused an enormous amount of anguish on both sides of the Irish Sea by waging a divisive and destructive campaign to take a country out of a union, while the other, look, fill out the rest of this yourselves, we've got a cameo account to set up. What are we bid? For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Muller. Thank you very much, Andrew Muller. What are we bid indeed? Well, nothing, if it turns out, on a new Facebook group. This is fascinating, Charles. You found this story in the New York Times, and the first off thing that I want to say is that the illustration is absolutely beautiful. It's beautiful, isn't it? And I was wondering to myself, I was wondering, is this, was this done by hand? Is this computer-generated? How long did it take to make? Um, but it's a wonderful, wonderful piece of graphic art, and, and you should absolutely have a look at the story in the New York Times at, at the illustration. And then dive into a story under the following headline. This is inside the world of buy nothing, where dryer lint is a hot commodity. And so, Georgina, we're going to end on a fairly zeitgeisty piece, which is perfect for sort of your Saturday musings. Um, and this is about a micro local website called Buy Nothing where people get rid of things that they don't want anymore. Um, and it, this has something in common with websites where if you've got a used sofa or a used bicycle or an old washing machine. But here are the other things that people are getting rid of on this website. A half-eaten birthday cake, unused 
pickle brine, fish tank water, and yes, as it says in the headline, dryer lint. And, and here's one of the great things about this piece, in addition to the artwork, is it tells you about all the ways that all of these things are useful. And so dryer lint apparently is absolutely perfect for making hamster beds. Did you know that, Georgina? I did not. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and so, so this, it's this website where you can only belong to one of them, and it has to be right in your neighborhood. And and lest you think that this is full of, of, of unusable junk, there's a Silicon Valley version of Buy Nothing. And someone gave away for free a piece of art that turned out to be worth $10,000, Georgina. I'm signing extraordinary, up. Extraordinary, extraordinary. What I, what I love about this is that it's, it's not, you, you can't trade at all. It, it's all done in the spirit of generosity and gifting. And so you put it out there and you say, I have this thing. And then they keep sort of stressing the article, you have to let it simmer. And so sort of 10 people or whatever might contact you. And then you choose by, I don't know, asking them to tell a joke or to say why they need it, or you draw a random number. And, and it's a great, what it's trying to do is kind of generate this neighborhood feel. And it's not like I'm doing a curb drop, tears everything out outside. It's it, People absolutely have to talk to each other about it. You have to take your time about it. Uh, and I think it's a lovely way just to foster a sense of community. Uh, that is why it's such a great zeitgeisty piece and such a, a, a great movement and, and, and a phenomenon. The New York Times does, however, call this whole concept and this particular website a little bit annoying. And, <laughs> and, and that's because what it does is, is this sort of of a little bit of jumping through hoops to say, yes, I deserve your pickle brine more than the other person who wants your pickle brine and, and the ethical dilemmas that it generates. And if you're the owner of a pile of dryer lint, you then have to choose. And why would you want pickle brine? Ah, so this is a really good one and something that perhaps we can sympathize with. The person who actually got this jar of pickle brine says that he uses it after he takes a vodka shot, you take a little drink of pickle brine. My Moscow days remind me that this is indeed the, the case, except that usually the way it works is you do lots and lots of vodka shots, and then the next morning you have the pickle brine, and you actually feel quite a lot better quite quickly. Wow, that's extraordinary. Right? Yeah. Uh, and finally, the uses for old fish tank water? So... The older the fish tank water, the more nutrient-rich it is, and apparently it works great as fertilizer. There we go. We're going to end the program on fish poo. Charles Hecker, thanks very much for joining us, and that's all we have time for on this edition of Monocle on Saturday. Thanks to our studio engineer, Nora Hall, and our producer, Marcus Hippie. I'm Georgina Godwin, and this show will return at the same time next week. Thank you for listening. 